tell you what, I got people all over this church who take care of me on a daily basis, including Mr. Berryhill over there. So uh, it's always nice to have. But I'm going to try to do this lesson a little differently today. I'm going to give you guys more time to talk at the groups uh, than we normally do. One, just because it's been a while since we've been together. Uh, we were out last week with the snow, and then I was out the week prior with COVID. And you guys had to endure Bill Search's teaching for a week, and that's just tough to do. Uh, uh, so, but, but anyway, we'll give you guys a little more time to talk today. If you recall, three weeks ago, we kicked off a new series in Zechariah that you've probably all really hung on to over the last three weeks. Uh, I'm assuming just, you, I mean, you completely remember the lesson from three weeks ago to set the context for today. I know that you don't, so I'm going I'm to give a brief overview of the lesson to get that we did a few weeks back to get this kicked off, and we're going to get into Zechariah today, chapter 1, and it'll be, we're just going to cover verses 1 through 6 uh, in chapter 1, and so we're not going to get too far into it today. We'll wait for all the visions and prophecies for next week, uh, but I just want to remind you as we get in kind of what we talked about a few weeks back. You know, where we are in history, where we are in politics, where we are in uh, just the nation of Israel and God's people and what's going on with them. And so if you recall, uh, in where we are in history, you know, we are, the, the Babylonians had defeated, you know, the, had, had conquered Jerusalem, had destroyed the temple. Uh, the Israelites had gone into exile into Babylon. They were in exile for 70 years. Uh, and then the Persians come in and they defeat the Babylonians. And now the Persians are in charge. And as part of the Persian uh, empire, the Persian king allows the Israelites to go home. So slowly and surely, the Jewish people start going back into the promised land. And so we see that Zerubbabel, who had come from the lineage of the, of the royal line of, of Judah, Zerubbabel leads the people back. And one of the very first jobs that they try to do is they try to start rebuilding the temple. And they get really excited as a small group of Jewish people goes back and they start rebuilding the temple. Uh, they lay the foundation of the temple. And you have all these people who are excited, who are cheering, who are just thrilled that they're seeing the temple being constructed. And you have all these old people who were there when the temple was destroyed, and they know that foundation is not what it once was, right? So they, they know that that temple that they're building at that point in time is not going to be anywhere near the glory and the splendor of, of Solomon's temple that was constructed all those years ago. So you see this kind of odd dynamic, this, this hope as well as the tension with some pain because it's just not what it was, but the people are making progress. In two years, that foundation's laid. Uh, they're going through the construction. They're starting to settle Jerusalem again, even though it's a small group of people. Uh, but then all of a sudden, uh, the enemies all around them, uh, or their enemies all around them, start to persecute them. Uh, they, they write letters back to the new Persian king and say, I don't think you know who these people are. These people have rebelled against everybody. They're a stiff-necked group of people, and they're just going to build this temple. They're going to build their walls. They're going to build their city, and they're going to use it as a base to rebel against you. And so they convince the Persian king to shut them down. And so you have the funding stop, you have the, the right to continue construction stop, you have people on all sides uh, beginning to, to harass and persecute the Israelites. And so we see that work just stops for like 16 years. Work on the temple just stops. And so when you get into where we really talked a few weeks back, 
If you recall, it's the very first time I've ever kicked off a Bible series about a book of the Bible, and I didn't even talk about the book of the Bible. Uh, We never even got to Zechariah. We got to uh, Haggai and Ezra uh, a few weeks back, and we see that God starts bringing the prophets in and bringing his people, and he tells his people, he goes, who told you to stop working on the temple? Right? Didn't I give you a command? Didn't I send you people to go back into Jerusalem and, and, and rebuild my temple? Why have you stopped? And they're like, well, you know, we're getting attacked from all sides, and the, the Persian king's not letting us do this. And God kind of says, well, so what? I told you to rebuild the temple. And so you see this, this, this call from Ezra in particular, and, and, and as he's working with the people, and you see God uses prophets to pretty much say, hey, not only are you not rebuilding my temple, but now you're spending all your time just making your homes nice. You're spending all your time worrying about your own families. You're spending all this time doing things that I really didn't tell you to do. Uh, your, your homes are nice and beautiful, and you're living lives in increasing comfort, uh, while my house is empty. Right? My house sits in ruins. And so we get this, the people are convicted at this point in time, that God's telling them what to do. God's raised up the prophets to give them this warning, to give them this instruction. Uh, and that is where we are in history. You've got this small group, this increasing in number group of Israelites going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they're getting motivated again by God to do what he has told them he needs them to do. And so right after that, that big sermon from Haggai uh, in, for the people, about a couple months after that is where we see Zechariah come in. So God raises up Zechariah again as a prophet to talk to his people. And we're going to see God use Zechariah in a little bit different way, where he uses uh, Haggai to, to, to tell them to give them a specific command to go tactile do something, right, to go build the temple. Zechariah, he's going he's gonna to talk at a, very, at a deeper level. Right? He's going to give the people hope. He's going to give the people encouragement. He's going to encourage them to go rebuild the temple, but he's also going to tell them that he's up to something with them much greater than what they understand. There are so many messianic prophecies going on in the book of Zechariah. Right? He's telling them not only is he going to build a physical temple, he's going to build a spiritual temple. Right? He's going to raise up a great nation. He's going to bring a redeemer. He's going to do these amazing things. He's going to bring Christ Right? And it's so much greater than what the people realize is going on. So that's, where, that's the context of where we are in history and in geopolitics with the Persians being in control, the people being back, a smaller group. But I want you to try to get yourself into the frame of the mind of the people at this point in time. Like I said, it's only been 70, 80 years or so since the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, they're, they're living with a fairly present memory of that. I mean, you think about, what, think about what's a big world event that occurred 70, 80 years ago from our lifetime today. What are we in? It's 2022. So take 70 years off that. Well, yeah, think about World War II. Korea, World War II, Pearl Harbor. Think about these monumental events in history. It doesn't seem like that long ago, Right? I mean, we, we still feel like we do, and none of us in here, to my knowledge, who knows, there might be one or two on Zoom, none of us in here fought in World War II. Did anyone fight in World War II in here? If so, that's awesome, but I don't think so. Uh, we got some Vietnam vets in here, I know, but, but think about, I mean, there were people at this time who were there as kids, right, and they remembered the temple. 
There are people that all the stories have been told. The Jewish people were a storytelling community, right? They probably feel the weight, right, of the Babylonian exile and the, and the destruction of the temple much greater than we feel the weight even of Pearl Harbor, right? Because they were God's chosen people. They were to sit up shining on the hill like that was not supposed to happen to them. That not at all was supposed to happen to them. So I want you to get into the tension that the people would have been feeling now at that time of what had occurred, what had occurred, what they were feeling from that, and then this hopeful expectation of what God is charging them to do and what he's going to do through them. So I want to go back and I want to read to you, I want to read to you what the prophets were saying to the people of Israel prior to the fall of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah is, a, is one of the major prophets. Jeremiah spoke to God's people both prior to the fall and after the fall. But prior to the fall, in Jeremiah 35, 14 through 18, Jeremiah says this to the people of Judah. He says, I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. Talking about God here. I have sent to you all my servants the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave you to you and your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, and they have not listened. I have called to them, and they have not answered. Right? Jeremiah was warning the people. God was using Jeremiah to warn his people yet again uh, that you, I am calling to you, you are not listening. Because you have not listened, because you have not obeyed my commands, because you have forsaken me, because you have rejected my commandments, because you have trusted in your ways more than you have trusted in my ways, I am allowing this destruction to occur. Right? I want you to think about this like you're, a number of you in here are fathers. Not all of us, but a number of you in here are fathers. Right? This is a loving father allowing for discipline at a massive level of his people. And so the people at this time would have been feeling this, knowing that what happened in the Babylonian exile, the destruction, was part of God allowing this to occur. But also, right after the fall of Babylon, uh, we had another prophet that was speaking to the Israelites who were there in Babylon. Uh, and this prophet was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was saying, I know this is awful. I know all this has happened. This is God's will for us. He's allowed this to occur. But let me tell you that not all hope is lost. And so I don't know if you guys remember the Ezekiel and the dry bones story. But let me read you real quick. You don't need to flip there, but I'm going to read to you from Ezekiel 37. I want you to hear the message that God is giving to Ezekiel to give to the people when they feel like they are hopeless. Right? Ezekiel says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. This is a vision. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they're very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. 
I will lay sinews upon you and you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and I was, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What, what, Ezekiel, what God is using Ezekiel to say is the people of Israel felt hopeless, felt cut off. They felt dead, right? They had been disciplined in this incredible way. So much had been taken away from them. They felt as hopeless to have life and to have, have that idea of what God was doing to them as these dry bones in the valley. But God is saying, just like I can give life to these dry bones, I can give life to my people yet again. He continues in verse 11. He says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore I prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. I feel like the people at this time, the people of, uh, of, of the time of Zechariah, the people who are there trying to rebuild the temple, they would have been balancing two very important truths you know, at all times. They would have been balancing the first truth that said, our fathers did not listen to God's command, and there were monumental consequences to that. Right? That would have been heavy on them. But they also would have had this other truth there that said, all of our people's hope was lost, and God has still promised that there will be hope. Right? God has promised that he would bring our people back to Israel, and he has. Right? He has worked through all the most powerful empires in the world to bring his people, even if it was a small remnant, to bring them back to Israel. So they've got this heaviness and this hope that is weighing on them in a very interesting way all throughout the story here in Zechariah. So with that being said, right, I want you to kind of feel that tension, that weight, that scale. I want to read to you the first six verses of Zechariah, and then we're going to have some discussion. So if you can, go ahead and flip to your Bibles. And, and as Cliff Sanders would say, channel my inner Cliff Sanders. I don't know who all, anyone here here Cliff Sanders Sunday School class? Yeah, we got a few of you all. Cliff Sanders would always say, don't be ashamed about going to your table of contents, right? Never, feel any, never make anyone feel bad that they have to go to their table of contents to figure out where a book of the Bible is. Because I'll tell you, I go to my table of contents all the time, especially to find the minor prophets. So, uh, so go to your table of contents, find where Zechariah is, uh, open up Zechariah. And so, so here's what it says. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, so that would have been the Persian king, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. 
Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. I want you to do it at your, at your tables for a moment, and uh, feel free to, to join into a table if you need to. Uh, is There are three words in this passage that we just read that I think set the theme, not just for the lesson today, but honestly for the entire book of Zechariah, right? There's three words. I want you to just talk at your groups. What do you think those three words are and why? Talk about that for a little bit. I'll give you all plenty of time and we'll come back. All right, well, let's bring it back to the main group here. Like I said, I'm going to have, we're going to talk for a few more minutes and then I'm going to let you go back to another group discussion on something. Um, and, but so the three words, what were the three words? What do y'all think? Return to me. Anybody get anything different? I'm going to make them worry for a moment that they're wrong. Did anyone get anything different? Yeah, there was. Repent, repent. Wayne, Wayne sums it all up in one word, uh, but that's, that's a, uh, what does, what does the word, just real quick, make sure everybody gets this. If you get nothing else out of today, what does the word repent mean? Did, were you guys talking about this over there? Turn around, right. If I'm walking this direction and I turn around, I have, rebent, I have repented, right? Oh, all right, there we go, see? Y'all do listen. It's great. I mean, it's, so you have turned around. I don't know, is anyone watching The Chosen right now? Somebody's phone's going off, by the way. You get okay. Is anyone watching The Chosen? It's interesting. I I I, uh, I watched both seasons and kind of got obsessed with it for a moment. Now I'm making my kids watch it. But in the introductory scenes of The Chosen, they've got all these fish swimming, and you see one fish turn around, and then that other fish seems to have some contact with other fish, and then every now and then another fish will turn around. Right? They're repenting. They're changing. Right? Return to me are the three words here that are so critically important. Let me read you the verse, because uh, God will do more with his words than I will with mine. Verse 2, it says, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, to the promise that Major Duck's talking about. I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God is giving them the opportunity right there to remember that he loves them. And he's saying, return to me. You have been far away. Your fathers rebelled. Your father's fathers rebelled. Don't be like your fathers, right? Return to me. He's pleading with them. Because we've seen generation after generation after generation not respond to God's will. They've gone their own way. 
And I think we, we've talked about this in here before, but, but we think about we're going our, our way when we're missing the mark. That is sin, right? And the root of all sin is a mistrust in God, right? When we go our own way, just as simply as you can think about it, pragmatically think about it, when we go our own way, we're just trusting in ourselves more than we are God. I mean, we are. I mean, that, that, that's what we're doing. And generations have done this, and they, they paid the consequences. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think, I think Return to Me pretty much sums up the whole book of the Bible. Uh, we are going to continue to learn all the rest of the book of the Bible, but, but Return to Me really is it's a great overarching theme. We just need to remember. Now, here's my question. Now, I want you to really think about this. There's another contrast we need to consider. There are generations, generations who did not follow God's command. You then have the exile you have all kinds of bad things happen to these people. All kinds of bad things happen. And now you have people on the other side of the exile who are listening to God's commands. Because, because what, what, is, what, what does the last verse say? Uh, verse 6, right there in the middle of verse 6, it tells you how these people responded. These people in Jerusalem, small numbers, trying to rebuild the temple, they hear Zechariah speak and they say, so they repented. They listened, right? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us, right? They repented and they acknowledged what had gone on and where they were in this relationship. But they're actually listening. Generations don't listen. This generation does listen. What's the difference, right? And here's what I want you to maybe talk about in your groups. These people had been disciplined in an incredible way. They had gone through all kinds of hardships, right? What is it about that discipline? What is it about that hardship? What is it about that suffering these people went through that changed the way they responded to God, right? What is it? Why would that happen? Talk about that Talk about any, any opportunity you may have had to discipline your own kids at any point in time and why that may be that they respond differently afterwards. Chat about that for a few moments and we'll come back. All right, well, let's, let's bring it back here. I want to make sure I get you guys out of here in plenty of time. But, but has anyone ever had a kid who never got disciplined before or had a kid who never went through anything that was tough? What are those kids like? Yeah, they're brats, aren't they? I mean, obviously, my dad's here. He knows this was not the case for me growing up. <laughs> my dad, as, as I've told you before, expected immediate obedience. And so uh, it just wasn't a problem. But, but discipline came from time to time, and it was good for me, right? Uh, whenever there's no discipline, whenever there's no character-building opportunities, you kind of see what happens on the end result. Things don't go very well. But there's an, there's an interesting thing that happens, though, I, I think in our society right now in particular, about what happens whenever we, we kind of go down these roads and we're dealing with suffering or we're dealing with, we're dealing with pain, we're dealing with things that just aren't going well. And we tend to, and I do this myself, when we're going through those things, I tend to look at everybody else and point the finger at them saying, this is their fault. Right? This is their fault that I'm going through what I'm going through. It's their fault that I'm suffering in this way. It's their fault that I'm feeling the pain. And even so often, we're tempted to point at God and tell him it's his fault. 
that we're going through what we're going through. But there's something incredible that happens whenever you get down that road of suffering or you get down that road of, of just a difficult time in our lives and we realize, you know, it was really our fault all along. Can you think of any Bible story where somebody went down a road of self-destruction, going their own way, trusting in their own ways, and they finally get to the bottom and they realize it was their fault all along and they turn back hoping that their God, that their father will forgive them. Right? What, what story does that sound like? Prodigal son. There's a... Uh, the prodigal son is told time after time in the Bible. If you read the Old Testament closely, you will hear the prodigal son come up so often. Right? Jesus just makes it really clear but that story gets told a lot, right? We go our own way. We trust in our, the power of our own right hand. The prodigal son looked at his dad, and he goes, not only do I not trust that I can live a joyful life with you, I would prefer you die right now so I could take your inheritance. And the dad says, well, I'm not going to die right now, but I'm going to give you your share of the inheritance. The dad sends him on his way, and he goes off, and he spends it on everything. He, he spends it on prostitutes. He spends it on, on chasing the world. He does all these different things, and he finally finds himself where? Where's rock bottom for the prodigal son? He's, he, is, he is cleaning out the pig pen, Right? And not only is he cleaning it out, he's eating the pods that the pigs are eating. A little Jewish boy is in the midst of a pig pen, right? This is a big deal. This is as, as dirty, as filthy, as low as he could get, was to be in the midst of that pig pen. And then he turns around, right? Because he recognized this is all his own doing. He's not blaming his dad for this. He's not blaming God for this. He's not blaming his older brother for this, right? He's not blaming some girl he met for this. He realizes it's his fault. And he turns around and he tries to go back to his dad not to be a son. He doesn't think he's worthy of being a son anymore. And it's not to, not to get a high-paying job or anything. He just hopes he can go and be a servant, right, on his dad's estate. His dad's estate, which is smaller now because his dad carved off a third of it to give to him, right? He just hopes that he can go back and be a servant. And when he gets back... What happens? What is, he, what, hold, what is he expecting to happen? He could be rejected. He could be cast aside. He's hoping maybe the best case scenario for him, the best case scenario for, the, for this son, is that his dad will say, you can be one of my servants, but I don't want to see you. Right? You can, you can live off in town somewhere and come and work the fields from time to time just so that you can survive. But I don't want to be a part of your life. That's what he was hoping for. But what he found was, what he didn't know, is that every day his dad was looking upon the horizon to try to see if his son was coming home or not. And, and then whenever he saw his son coming home, his son who had been filthy, would have been absolutely filthy, swimming in the pig pens, Right? Think about what's in the pig pens. Who's here ever worked in pig pens before? Well, my dad has, right? How about cows? Cows. Pigs are, pigs are a lot worse than cows. They're a lot worse than cows. My dad once told me a story that uh, he grew up on a farm and they had pigs. And so his, his dad was going out of town for a little while and he had just gotten this new truck 
And he told him, he goes, he told my dad, he goes, hey, drive the truck down there every now and then, make sure you feed the pigs. And my dad got this great idea. And his dad, his dad had told him, whatever you do, don't leave the truck in there. And my dad got this great idea. He goes, hey, I don't have to make all these trips. I'll just take it all in one load in the truck and just leave the truck out there. He gets back. His dad says, well, son, where's my truck? He goes, oh, it's, it's out with the pigs. And he just shakes his head. They go, and every part of the paint on that truck had been taken off. The brake lines have been cut. Just the pigs... The pigs are destructive beasts. They're just disgusting, destructive beasts, right? This, this little Jewish boy had been swimming in the filth of it all, right? So he would have come back home. He had nothing to his name. He was penniless. He had been broken. He would have been actually covered in filth, right? And when the dad sees him, not only does he welcome him back, he runs to him and takes his clean robe and wraps him in it, right? And, and gives him the place as son, puts his ring on his finger, says, go slaughter the fattened calf and let's celebrate together because my son has come home. He were once dead and now you are alive, right? God is constantly telling us this story. Return to me, right? Return to me. He's telling those people right then that were trying to rebuild this temple. He's reminding them, it's like, hey, your fathers, the generations didn't listen to me. They went their own way. They were generations of the prodigal son, and they've suffered the consequences of it, right? But you, you, my people, you have seen it. You have felt the consequences. This is your turn to listen and return to me. And what we're going to find when we go through Zechariah, the rest of the book, is that loving father who embraces the returning prodigal son is going to celebrate. He's going to celebrate the return and t- tell them all the great things that are going to come as you return to the father. For our application today, though, what I really want to talk, what I want you to talk about, and and I and I'm going to in class, and I want you to sit in silence for two minutes and pray and I want you to pray to God and I want you to ask God these two questions okay these two questions I want to I want you to ask him will you show me will you convict me will you will you help me see the error of my ways Because until we realize that as we're going down that road of self-destruction and sin, until we realize that we are the ones making that decision, we are the ones rejecting God's command, until we realize it's us, it's us, right? It's hard to turn around. It's hard. Because we always blame it on someone else. So I want you to ask God, will you show me, will you convict me? Will you help me know that that, that I am bearing this weight on my own shoulders? And then the second question is this, because I think this is one of the biggest issues in Christianity today, is I don't think we believe that God actually loves us. I don't think that we believe that God is that loving Father that is pleading with us to come home, return to me. I want you to ask God this question, Will you show me clearly that you are pleading with me to come home? Each and every day, you're pleading with me to come home. Right? So just if you could, 
two minutes. I don't want it to be too long. I don't want it to get awkward. But I want us all to pray those two questions. Will you convict me of my sin, but then convince me of your love for me? Because if you are convinced that God loves you, there is nothing, there is nothing that can't come from that knowledge. There is nothing, because you will take the God's love that you know he has for you, and you will show it to others in ways that you could never imagine. But I think you first have to be convinced that God loves you, and he will show you. Be urgent in the way you ask him to do that. All right, let's pray.